So um, the uh, topic, this is a six-part series that we're going to be doing. We're going to take one week off um, for Memorial Day weekend. Um, and uh, I should, thank you so much. If anyone ever wants to bring me a cup of coffee during the next six weeks, extra points. Um, I'll have like a whole stack of them. Um, so uh, we'll take one week off for Memorial Day. I hope you'll consider sticking with us. Um, the, the, um, the overall title that we gave uh, this, uh, by the way, this is Brandon Bennett, if you haven't all met him. Brandon's on staff here as our uh, young adult and college minister. And he and I have been talking about this. You've been on staff two years now, like as of, last, as of last month. And most of those two years we've had a conversation about uh, the topic at hand, which is Christianity in a post-Christian age, is I think what we call the sort of super title. But today in particular, with limited time, uh, we've got about a half hour. Maybe we'll go about five minutes over. If you want to leave uh, at 10 till or so to go to the 11 o'clock, we will take no offense. But, I, but I'd love to, to give us a little uh, extra time that, um, that we'll need. Um, but today's topic at hand is uh, confronting... Uh, our society's idols. Um, I handed out a, a cover letter from the adventure that I wrote a couple weeks ago, that, uh, a couple months ago, that speaks to the topic um, where I said the Bible Belt is no longer the Bible Belt. And I actually got a ton of emails from people saying I'd never heard anybody say anything like that before. I think you're crazy. Uh, why, do, why do you even care about this stuff? Just focus on Jesus. Well, I think it's a disservice not to care about this stuff. Um, as, a, as someone who's, a, who's an outsider, A, to Christianity, I converted when I was in my mid-20s, and someone who's an outsider, B, to the South, I'm able to live in a place like the Bible Belt and sort of see it with a different set of lenses um, than, um, than somebody who might sort of be well entrenched in, into the society. And I think that the South as I see it, is about 20, 30 years behind where I was growing up in Northern California, um, where it was not, Christian culture just wasn't presumed. Uh, If someone was wearing a collar on the street, they wouldn't just yell an expletive at the person, they'd kick you in the shins. Um, If not literally, at least figuratively. Um, But this is, uh, this is the the age that that we live in. Unfortunately, it's becoming that. and we've taken for granted that we live in Christendom because the American culture for quite a while has sort of uh, had inside of it uh, at, a, at a subliminal level, at least in, in most institutions, uh, an idea of being a, a Christian society. Um, and uh, so we still have some hangovers of that in the culture. So it's harder to see, um, you know, Pledge of Allegiance, right? You know, just things like that, that where, where it's... Um, where it's entrenched into society's sort of furniture, mental furniture, cultural furniture, um, and yet uh, that's kind of changing. Um, and uh, I'm going to bring just one uh, piece of scripture, say one word about that, and then I'm going to hand it over to Brandon, who's going to to give us more of a sort of <clears throat> um, theoretical uh, and uh, sociological framework for what we're talking about here. So this is something you know. We're talking about confronting society's idols, and this has been happening since the beginning. This is a a passage that you well know, but I bring it back into you to remind you. This is Paul in Athens, and he's speaking in Athens, and people are really intrigued by what he has to say. And of course, in Athens, 
um, they have a certain set of idols. And he, in a winsome way, confronts that society's idols in order to, to share the gospel. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God, uh, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then skipping down one more verse, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Um, I think in our society, we have idols of our culture that aren't trinkets made of gold and silver of stone, but are ideas that we often think are quite noble. And so that's why it's so hard to, as Paul says in First uh, Thessalonians, you turned from your idols and went to the true and living God. It's very difficult for us in a society where uh, we have uh, uh, idols of the imagination, of career, of family, of success, of wealth, um, that we look to and say, those are great things that I want to aspire to, but they're often the very things that, um, that are, are objects of worship and affection. So how did we get there? And Brandon's going to give us sort of a, a little bit of a framework. If anybody wants to kind of come deeper in, yeah, yeah, you take the recorder. Well, good morning, guys. Um, we're running a little behind, so um, I think I'm going to offload a lot of the thoughts to the next few weeks. We got what five weeks five totally. So I, the title of our talk is what? Uh, confronting, confronting society's idols: the the church in a post-Christian or post-modern world. So what do we mean by postmodern? That's really just the question I kind of want to answer. What do we mean when we say we're in a postmodern world? Um, now I've been helped here by a few people: um, uh, a sociologist, Peter Berger, and Robert Jensen, a theologian. So I'm not I'm not the, that really that smart. Uh, so Anyway, I've sketched out a few timelines. Um, when we say we mean postmodern, when we say we're postmodern, um, we're post something. We're post the modern period. We're after the modern period. So, if you look at like the year 500 to the to the 1300s, you basically have a storyline. Um, the the Christian story has come into the West. It's interacted with our Western culture, and it's given it a story. It's given it um, a plotted narrative, right? Um, uh, just think of not that long ago under Teddy Roosevelt. Um, the American society had a sort of large dream of the future, right? So we had, a, we had a story. We had a public story by which we operated by. Our individual lives... We had, a, we had a larger sense of purpose as a society. But increasingly, we're living as individuals. So if we, if we go back all the way to the medieval period, 
Christianity came into the world of Western culture and it gave it a story. And you have the medieval period lasting from about 500 to the 1300s, right? So in the medieval period, we thought there was a storyteller and because there was a storyteller, we have a story, right? Um, uh, and then we move into the modern period, which is about year 1500 to say 1900. And then when we cut out the storyteller, namely God, um, we, in, we, we slowly move to the postmodern period, which means we no longer have a story. So let me, let me say that again, because that wasn't altogether clear. So in the medieval period, Christianity came into our culture and it gave it a story. It gave it a plotted narrative by which all of us as individuals, if we were in the medieval period, we had a story by which together we operated by. Then, when you move into the modern period, well, modernity, uh, the thinkers basically cut out the storyteller, but we still had the story, right? So if you think of under Teddy Roosevelt's programs, there was talk, that was kind of a modern thing, right? There was still a story. We had a dream of the future. Um, uh, there was some sort of together by which we were advancing to some better state in society. Does that make sense? We were going somewhere. But now, since 1900, increasingly, we either have a storyteller nor we have a story, right? So our story, well, our society actually no longer really has a story. So that means for all of us as individuals, we're just kind of individuals in a storyless space. Um, and so uh, things, we're going to look for things to provide meaning, right? So, um, so that's where you kind of, uh, we could begin to talk about individualism or um, consumerism. So those are kind of two idols that I want to pull out. Increasingly in, postmodern, in the postmodern period, individualism, individualism and consumerism is going to take on a, a big thing for us, right? Um, if we no longer have, if we're no longer going to any end point, if we no longer have a story, we're going to just be buying goods, right? We, uh, we're, we're always pursuing meaning. So we're going we're gonna to run off to the shopping mall to, to give ourselves meaning by buying goods. Um, or individualism, right? Um, we all as individuals have our own ways by which we make sense of life. Um, can I read this from Habits of the Heart that I, uh, that I just read yesterday? So it was giving a story about a man, this book that I was reading yesterday, it's called Habits of the Heart, Individualism and Commitment in American Life. It was giving a story um, about a man who who was working for his family, he was working two jobs, um, he was never giving any time to his, to his family, so he got a divorce, he remarries, and then he decides that he's going to give family the, the majority of his attention. So then it, it concludes with this, despite the combination of tenderness and admiration he expresses for his wife, the genuine devotion he seems to feel for his children and his own resilient self-confidence, 
Brian's justification of his life thus rests on a fragile foundation. His life appears much more coherent than when he was dominated by careerism, but to hear him talk, even his deepest impulses of attachment to others are without any solid foundation. So notice, again, I'm trying to continually draw us to this. Um, whatever, whatever this scenario is, we as a society no longer have a public story by which we operate by. So various things like individualism and consumerism are going to take on a certain uh, kind of meaning for us, right? So again, if I bring up consumerism, we no longer have a public story by which we operate by. Um, we no longer have a public story. And so where is our desire going to be directed? It's going to be directed to um, it's going to be directed to buying goods, for example, or it's going to be directed to relationships, or um, pick or choose. Or pick or so choose. Yeah, relativism is related to this, right? Right. Because so uh, it doesn't matter. All paths lead to the same God. Um, it's sort of narrow-minded to say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Because that's okay for you, but I might have a, a totally different paradigm. Right. So. Right. Um, so, so I want to open this up more for discussion. I, I don't want to offload a lot of heavy topics. Does any any thoughts on any thoughts on this? Any questions or concerns? I've got a question. So, nineteen hundred. I guess that sort of surprises me. What <clears throat> what, what changed? What changed at nineteen hundred? Between the modern period and the postmodern period. So it, why, why is that yeah, I've confluence of things, industrial revolution is a part of that. Yeah. Um, Jason Wallace wearing your team here. Mm -hmm. history of thought. But yeah, go ahead. Well, Teddy Roosevelt sort of the paradigm of individualism. I mean, he had this just the way he lived his life. He was you know, sort of bigger than life. Sure. Well, individualism, of course, has been around even since the modern period, but we continue to have individualism now in the postmodern period. So, I'm sorry, I wasn't clear on that. So, um, we have individualism even here in the modern period, but here in the modern period, we have a larger story by which we together as people, as a society, it kind of keeps that in check. So now as we move into the postmodern period, there is increasingly no longer a story and so now we're just individuals um, moving to no end point, right? So you're quite, going back to your question, basically, if in the modern period we have a story but no storyteller, we're going to move to a place where we have, if there's no storyteller, there's no story. I guess we're just questioning why, why it's 1900 yeah. and not yeah. opposed. Yeah. Why not fresh? Yeah, same like it was 1950 or 1970. Or, you know, it just seemed early. Wow. Than 1930. Yeah, this is a rough estimate okay. sketching why, I mean, I don't know exactly why roughly the 1300s moving to about 1400 or 1500 would move from medieval to modern. Right. There are certain thinkers that kind of shift the culture. 
Yeah, but the enlightenment is happening here. I mean, we've been we've been living in light of the enlightenment for the last 500 years, and these things don't happen like 1900 all of a sudden. And that's why I say like we have certain cultural hangovers still here that we take for granted that in the South that everybody might be a Christian, um, but that's not actually true. And so there's a lag time here uh, versus other parts of the country. Uh, larger cities, New York, um, or the West Coast. But that doesn't mean that everybody on the West Coast is not a Christian. So it's the, the, the boundaries are fuzzy. Mm-hmm. But, um, that makes it more difficult, I think, to see in a place like the South that we are living in post-modernity. Uh, and that places like New York, London, and Tokyo are actually influencing us uh, much more than we think. Um, and especially in a large city like Birmingham, uh, you're going to see it more acutely than uh, rural Shelby County, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, go ahead. One big thing that happened in that beginning about 1900 was much, much, much increased speed of transportation and communication. Yeah, so I think that I think the Industrial Revolution has something to do with you know 1800s and the move into the 20th century, um, and that certainly um, that certainly participates in things like consumerism. Uh, for for American society, yeah, yeah. This is a wild idea I have, but it, when do we get electricity in the home? Uh, I actually don't know the year of that. Probably so probably late 1800s, early 1900s. Right. Well, once I think electricity brought huge changes, and for no other reason, if you look at the world that that picture comes up on the computer and you can see the United States and it's full of light, you know. Uh, First of all, we know Jesus is the light of the world. And then we've got light in the world that is not Jesus and the world begins to change. Sure, yeah, and so... That's uh, crazy. one thing that I want us to think about today is the, that how postmodernity and um, you know enlightenment sort of thinking undergirds a lot of our um, American culture these days. And again, like I said, when we first started, there are a lot of things that happen in our society that we take for granted and aspire to and think are noble and in small doses to be sure, you know, uh, but anything can be turned into uh, an idol. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, family, education, sport, uh, career, your house, uh, your car, relationships, um, and uh, how we find increasing satisfaction in those things. And that it's not the things made of silver and gold like the people in Athens, but it, it's those sort of ideas. And often uh, I'll find in Christian culture that we begin to um, enmesh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, we're synchronous. Syncretism. This is American syncretism. Syncretism, we often think of pagan, African, South American cultures, like <coughs> voodoo. You know, interweaving the stories of uh, Catholic Christianity with voodoo tradition. That happens here. I mean, not with voodoo, but with soccer. (laughs) I mean, I had to leave the 5 o'clock service last week because there was a dance recital at 5.30 to go to the Alabama Theater for my daughters. Well, it's the evening. Most people aren't going to church. But 
when you all grew up here in the South, what, 40, 50 years ago, would that have ever happened? And I'm not trying to say like that's, you know, <laughs> I'm not trying to disparage that as much as to say that is the evidence, the fruit of what I'm talking about, that we were in Christendom in the South until like the 60s. Um, Will Wilmon, who was here uh, during Lent, tells a story about how he grew up in kind of quasi-rural South Carolina, and he knew Christendom had ended in the South, and the movie theater in his town in the 1960s started playing on movies Sun on Sunday. Um, and so, uh, and, but, but again, uh, um, it's, I think it's difficult for us to, to sort of see and, and tease those things apart. Whereas uh, where I grew up in Northern California, again, there are Christians there. I converted to Christianity in San Francisco, California. Crazy evangelical Christian in San Francisco. I had to hide my identity. I, I didn't let my roommates know that I was going to church um, because I was a, a afraid of, of what they would think. So there it was felt much more uh, acutely. Um, so we're saying like it's a post-Christian period. It's yeah. post-Christendom. We're used to in the South being dominated. Our culture, Christianity has dominated the culture, right? And so we've moved past a period that that's just no longer the case. And we need to recognize that. Yeah, and I think that's the main thing for us today when we're trying to say right. Right, this whole class, the six-week series, but especially uh, today in terms of what are our idols, um, is, is recognizing the fact that we live in actually this post-Christian age and that will become increasingly clear to us unless God intervenes and uh, Christ comes again like tomorrow um, or through his providence changes the winds of the culture. But as Andrew said in his sermon, if you were at the 9 o'clock, the last 100, 200 years in the United States where Christianity dominates the culture is a minority uh, report <laughs> right. that actually what we have thought is the sort of the, the majority culture across history uh, actually has been the minority report. Any reactions to what we're saying here? Is this the first time you've heard anything crazy like this before? Are we, uh, um, you know, do you want to push back at all? Uh, Why do you think it started more rapidly in California? Yeah, sure. When I was growing up, uh, I, in the 1980s, we had these bracelets that we called friendship bracelets. Do you remember those? We you braid them. And I went to Minnesota to visit my family like when I was 12. And they were totally into friendship bracelets. And I was like, that was so three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> California is often, in American culture, kind of ahead. It's like Europe in terms of we can look to places like that and say, oh, that's where it, it, that, that's where things are, are heading for the rest of the country. Um, uh, and we might see glimpses of it here, especially in urban environments. But um, it's, just, it's just because of the, the cultural force of a place like California in terms of that's where all the movies and TV are made. You know, that's where a lot of music is produced. Um, and, uh, and so therefore it, um, it's, it influences uh, even people in, in the rural south, whether we like it or not. And I think that's that's true with um, uh, philosophy and religion. Yeah. I wonder if there's some disadvantages to Christianity being the dominant view in a culture, and does Christianity operate better when it's the minority view? So good. Question. I love that thought. Yeah. What do you think, Brandon? Yeah. I mean, in, in well, we're not used to really being missionaries in the South, are we? We expect the culture is predominantly shaped by Christian values. And I think it's causing some panic now that we sense the pressure of the breaking of the story, 
uh, the, the culture that was once shaped by Christianity is going away. So now the question for us, which is the whole point we raise the idea of this class is, well, how does the church respond in a post-Christian or post-modern period? But I, I like your point. Yeah, um, I think there's something really exciting about when the church is actually in the uh, minority. In places like China, uh, if you hear, if you've ever met somebody who's participated in a Chinese house church, the fear of persecution from the dominant um, conventional culture, and yet the the fervency of belief of the people who are actually believers gathering in that environment. When I hear those stories, I often think that's quite reflective of what I imagine of the early church when you read a book like Acts. And so when we are in the dominant culture uh, in the United States, we'll take for granted that everyone's a Christian and a believer. And so we we tend to become actually, in a, in a real sense, less evangelical in terms of sharing the faith. Because we start to think um, people will just sort of catch it through coming to church uh, in the family, at school. That's why there's so much conflict over the idea of prayer in school, right? Because that's a signifier of the institutions no longer upholding um, uh, the mm-hmm. Christian voice. Uh, and uh, But that's because only we only ha- had that because we were in the dominant culture. Um, prayer, prayer in school and, and, and the like. Um, and of course, there's, there's a great advantage to being in the majority culture. We have a beautiful building that stands out and a gathering place and we can um, be uh, more public of, of, about our faith. So, yeah. I think this is really where First Peter might come in and uh, be helpful for us, right? Where First Peter, where Peter writes um, that the churches were exiles in a foreign land. Um, maybe it would help us as the church to recover that sense um, that we are exiles, that this is not quite our home. And the gospel message has something radical to say to our culture. Um, maybe we can really come into our own as the church. Now, I see it as an exciting opportunity. We can actually recover the fresh new word of the gospel um, that can really address people and address all of us in new ways. Um, I mean, what's dying is maybe really good because maybe it's actually phony religion that's going to die where the culture has just kind of made it really bland, the Christian message. And so um, we, the framework that we got for these six weeks, we took from a, um, a book by, you know, I hate when I bring Keller in because he's like the Protestant Pope, but um, Tim Keller. This book is actually really good. This is a distillation. If you've never seen it before, it's really written for ministers. This is like a distillation of Tim Keller's life and ministry. Sort of like, here's the like matrix download of Keller. And... Um, he gives these six marks of missional church, and so that's what we've devoted these six weeks to. Uh, the missional church and the post-Christian, the, the, the church in the post-Christian age has to be missional, like you said, uh, in terms of um, being uh, the minority voice. A lot like uh, we, we're going to have to look uh, more uh, lean, like our brothers and sisters in, in places like Asia and the Middle East. And he says these are the six marks of, of that kind of place. The first one, which is our topic today, is the church must, must confront society's idols. And I would add to that in a winsome way. Mm-hmm. Because uh, if you're confronting with a frontal assault 
people are not going to listen to you. You're like the guy over there on, what is it, Lakeshore Boulevard, <laughs> nobody's listening to him, right? I mean, he's out there every Saturday. Um, the, the church, number two, the church must contextualize skillfully and communicate in the vernacular. And that means not just speak the, um, the jargon of your local context, but what are the cultural vernaculars um, through which, which we can communicate? It's sort of a, a picking up on the last point, which is in the winsome way. You know, you can only be winsome in, in the, the, the vernacular, the vulgar, the, the street language, not just the words, but, but culturally speaking. So number three is, the church must equip people in mission in every area of their lives. This isn't just a Sunday morning endeavor. Um, Christians who have our conviction about this, it shapes their life. Uh, and that means it shapes, it informs, you live in light of the gospel when it comes to um, the ethical decisions you make, um, your parenting, your relationships, friendships, and uh, your vocation, work, or your hobbies. Um, you know, how you spend your life. That doesn't mean you need to start a Bible study in every lunchroom. Actually, it might mean other things, uh, more importantly. Number four, the church must be a counterculture for the common good. Um, uh, if we're in a, a society that tends to be idolatrous and we're trying to bring a, a new message into that, we're going to inevitably be countercultural. And yet, I think that we often try to be countercultural in all the wrong ways <laughs> uh, through things like sentimentalism and uh, ritualism. Whereas the counterculture might look more like the Greeks, who uh, the church in, in, uh, in uh, sorry, not in, in the, tr the church in Roman society, where the pagans would bring babies out to die in the field, and the Christians would go and get them and raise them as their own children. Now that's a counterculture for the common good. Um, and then uh, the church, number five, must itself be contextualized and should expect non-believers, inquirers, and seekers to be involved in most aspects of the uh, church's life and ministry. There are non-believers here every Sunday um, in the pews. In everything we do, number six, the church must practice unity. We, for so long, um, spoke disparagingly of other denominations, even within Protestantism, over sometimes what to the outside looks like quibbling over minor details. And um, again, I'll say as someone who grew up as a non-Christian, that was one of the things I pointed to and said, look at these hypocrites. Because I didn't understand the nuance of the difference between infant and adult baptism, the way that people were um, arguing about it. And I, you know, that wasn't attractive to me <laughs> or, or whatever it is. Um, and so those are the, the six things that we'll bring up. So today was confronting uh, society's idols. Any final thoughts? On, on no, I did want to revisit the fifth point you made. Yeah. Respect non-Christians in our midst, right? That's a, I think that's a shocking claim around here that we could expect non-Christians. And therefore midst. everything we do as a church is public. Uh, this gathering here. Some of you might not be Christians. Um, and uh, so, yeah, what does that mean? Uh, or, or Sunday in church and uh, things of that nature. Uh, any other final thoughts or questions? I yeah. have one thought just about it, living in a postmodern time. Do you think it's our job as Christians to continue the story, continue God's story, and I guess sort of living that out in our own way, you know? even though we don't have a story as a whole, it's like all of society in the world in the post-modern world, but 
maybe it's our job to listen to God and read God and continue his story. Um, yes, all Christians are um, in ministry. Mm-hmm. Not but, just those who get paid to do it. And that means sharing the story. Uh, and, and notice, which, you know, I was trying to rush, so I apologize, it was unclear. So the gospel itself is a story, yeah. right? And I don't just mean it's a story. It is a story about Jesus, his life, but the gospel actually tells us that we are going somewhere, right? That's called the eschaton. It's the end point of our, the, the gospel addresses all of us in this room and says, because Jesus now lives, that means something for your story. When you face death, Jesus now lives, and that means something for your personal story too, right? So we're going somewhere, um, and we need to celebrate that and uh, reenact that every Sunday, so we get the vividness of that story. Does that make? Does that answer the question? Yeah, we um, need to be, we need to be caught up in the, the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we're somewhere in the middle. Uh, you know, I mean, we know a lot, uh, but there's there's a hope of a. a a new, a new, a vision of a new creation to come, uh, you know. And so all the idols that we have are often an, trying to answer concerns and anxieties that people have. That you know, the vision we're given at the end of Revelation is there's a place where we won't need to, we'll no longer need to have those anxieties. So it's a place of, of no more tears. Um, and uh, so again, in what winsome ways can we communicate that story? Not just those of us who get paid to do it from the pulpit, but in the trenches of the carpool lane, uh, at the water cooler, um, at the dinner table on Thanksgiving. Um, you, you see what I'm saying? Uh, in ways that uh, you know you, you may never. Uh, you just don't have the time to plan what you're going to say, but if you're so caught up in the narrative of the Bible, it doesn't matter, because uh, you'll know what to say. The Holy Spirit will guide you to, to, to tell that story. Uh, so next week, again, uh, our topic is the church must contextualize skillfully and communicate in the vernacular. Uh, 